The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at SlateGist.com. It's Thursday, June 25th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Joe Biden is out to a lead, a big lead. But people, sheeple, don't get complacent. We can't be complacent or smug or sense that somehow... Um, it's so obvious that this president hasn't done a good job um, because, look, he, he won once. And if he gets his way, he'll win three or four more times. The warning, that warning from Obama, Barack Obama, is at once obvious and also ubiquitous. Don't get complacent like we're all Siegfried and Roy with that tiger in Ought 3. So that's not really fair to Siegfried or the tiger. What the New York Times dubbed a commanding lead, and if it were literally so, we wouldn't have to warn anyone to get non-complacent. This is a polling lead of 50 to 36 with Joe Biden leading Donald Trump. And that caused Clinton spokesman Joe Lockhart to tweet, I remember the day a poll came out with Dukakis up by 17 points. That was before the GOP hate machine revved up. Oh, well, since the GOP hate machine hasn't just revved up, but has actually subsumed all other recognizable parts of the GOP these days, I guess we'll be okay this time. The GOP hate machine. That's like 95% of the GOP's business. It's all hate machine related. They've really shed some non-core assets, spun off underperforming subsidiaries like Mitco. (laughs) But here's my attitude towards not getting complacent. On the one hand, of course, don't get complacent. On the other hand, who is this warning for? The fervid pussy hat wearing hashtag resistant Trump opponent? Is he or she going to get complacent? The warning don't get complacent is because Trump is down to about 36%. He's normally in the low to mid 40s. So that 5 to 8% of Trump's usual base that has defected or just are declining to vote You can't tell them not to get complacent. Their attitude isn't one of complacency. They've recently changed their mind or soured on Trump. So the message to them shouldn't be don't get complacent is whatever you do, guys, don't change your mind or you're right. You're right. You're totally right. You get it. That guy, the guy in the White House, he is bad. Don't you forget it. Then there's Matt Bai writing in the Washington Post, quote, There's really only one way for Trump to win this election, which is for Democrats to hand him the all-out culture war he desperately wants. Well, the people who are spearheading the culture war, tearing down statues not just of traitorous Confederate generals, but of Ulysses S. Grant, or these Wisconsin activists who tore down and dragged, not on the Twitter, but on the actual streets of Madison Way, a statue of Hans Christian Hegg, the abolitionist who fought for the Union and tried to actually rescue runaway slaves, a progressive, not just for his error, but our own. I guess you could say, like Hegg himself, the demonstrators got a little carried away. They also attacked a Wisconsin state senator, Tim Carpenter, for having the temerity to photograph them. Maybe he was worried, you're not going to attack Hans Christian Hegg, are you? So yeah, I wouldn't say, don't get complacent to them. I would say, maybe you guys should be a little more complacent. I have a little brochure about complacency. You might want to check it out. You know, so the message should essentially be, hey, let's all act like it's a revolution. But by revolution, I of course mean the stuffing envelopes and driving old people to the polls type of revolution, not 
kicking the shit out of 60-year-old elected officials who are definitely going to vote for Joe Biden, by the way. Want to know the real truth about all of this? What's the strategy to take now that Trump is trailing by 14 in this one New York Times poll? I'll tell you the strategy. Doesn't matter what the strategy is. Because whatever the 50% side does, as opposed to the 36% side, or the person driving the 36% side, irrelevant. This is really all about whatever Donald Trump does. However many more lighthearted statements he makes downplaying a death toll of 120,000. It is really hard to come up with any strategic posture that has an effect on that particular driver of voter sentiment. On the show today, a look, an honest look at the coronavirus numbers, not a spike, not a wave, just a lot of coronavirus that never went away. But first, Matthew Barge is a policing expert, a lawyer who served in the Obama administration on his policing task force and has been called in by the Justice Department when local police departments need oversight. Consent decree are the formal names for these agreements. And what they do is they allow for federal oversight, they allow for correction. But what really happens to a department under a consent decree? What tools does the federal government have to steer such a department toward effectiveness and constitutionality? Matthew Barge explains next. What happens when a police force violates norms and laws to such a degree that the federal government has to come in? This is called a federal consent degree. It's an oversight from the government. And you'll hear about some of the police forces that have notoriously bad reputations having to be overseen by a federal consent decree. All right, that's a bit of jargon, but who's the person who does it? Well, joining me now is Matthew Barge, who's a senior consultant with the Policing Project at the NYU School of Law. He's also a member of 21CP, which was essentially an, an Obama administration task force on policing, the outgrowth of that, including many uh, former police chiefs. And they talk and recommend what are the best policing practices. And Barge also makes sure the police forces adhere to consent decrees. Thanks for joining me, Matthew. Thanks for having me. How narrow or broad are these decrees? In other words, when we hear Cleveland and we know something about uh, poor policing, we maybe hear of Tamir Rice, but there are a lot of other things going on in Cleveland. Or take any of the jurisdictions. What is normal? Do they say, look over everything, turn over every rock? Or they do they just say, you know, use of force um, with minors, something like that? Yeah, I mean, so so the um, the history of, of federal consent decrees date back, um, perhaps somewhat ironically, to the 1994 Crime Bill, um, which is known and cited by activists appropriately for imposing, you know, uh, draconian um, sentences, uh, you know, minimum uh, sentences, and a whole host of other things. But uh, it really gave the Justice Department the authority to investigate local police departments. Um, the consent decrees kind of read like um, a, sort of everything in a kitchen sink list of sort of progressive-minded police reforms at, at, on the micro level. And what I mean by that are, you know, it, it, is that the consent decrees are kind of a set of the of the things that a police department should do today to prevent harm tomorrow. Um, there are a lot of things in the consent decree, you know, though that 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 really are geared toward the very um, specific issues. To your point, that you know maybe are uh, that, that kind of animate why the Justice Department is there. They don't speak 
per se to everything that is wrong within a police department. I, I mean, to, to be more precise about it, if there's a use of force problem and the Justice Department has decided there's a use of force problem, that's the area of focus. Are bad or at least underperforming police departments underperforming to the extent that they need a consent decree? Are they like Tolstoy's unhappy families? Are they all underperforming or in need of this decree for their own reason? Or is there a through line between these failing police departments, if I could use that term? The use of force is a major through line where officers should have de-escalated but did not. Where officers used force uh, as a first response as opposed to a last resort. And those are common attributes of police departments that are troubled, where the culture is such that officers believe that using force is something that um, they that, that, that they are allowed to do, uh, you know, when it is, um, when it's a convenient resolution to a complicated incident, as opposed to something that can only be used as, as, as a last, um, you know, resort. So you will see the reforms across, as, across consent decrees, uh, really focus on things like de-escalation of making sure that, you know, the policies related to force are emphasizing that any force that is used has to be necessary. It has to be proportional to the threat that's posed, um, you know, and, and that it's um, and that it's reasonable under the circumstances. Those are sort of the classic reforms related to force and it's consent decree. Now, you mentioned that you look in, or uh, if you're hired in that this capacity, you look at if the police departments are behaving unconstitutionally. But isn't the problem often that it's not that it's unconstitutional. Many of these shootings, these bad shootings where maybe different training and different use of force protocols, de-escalation techniques, even the message that you won't be backed up to the hilt by the union. It's not that it's an unconstitutional use of force. It's that the courts have given a lot of deference and leeway to police in defining what is a constitutional use of force and say a shooting. That's exactly right. You know, the Supreme Court in the late 80s, um, you know, set sort of what is the constitutional standard, which is that, a, a, that, that a force is, um, is, is constitutional when it's objectively reasonable. If a reasonable officer under the circumstances that the actual officer confronted would believe that force was necessary under the circumstances. And that, you know, that ha- I, I guess that works fine after the fact for smart men and women in black robes in the comfort of their courtrooms, but it does not work well practically on the streets of our cities. It does not give sufficient or specific enough guidance, in my view, to, to officers about what they can and cannot do, right? It, it's, it's not saying, do, you know, may I use a chokehold or not? You know, the mm-hmm. guidance from courts is, well, if it's reasonable under the circumstances, it's a vague and amorphous standard. So a lot of um, police departments understand appropriately and what consent decrees do is mandate um, that it's important for the particular policies of a police department to be much more specific, to go further, to set clearer expectations, not just for officers, but for the community so that they can understand when force, you know, isn't, is not appropriate. I mean, I, I, the, the, the courts have completely abdicated responsibility and dropped the ball with respect to being particular about whether, um, uh, you know, about the circumstances under, under which um, force is justified. Yeah. So then can we ever have true reform if ultimately the message is, but you won't be punished? I mean, I'm thinking of, I played a uh, football offensive line, right? And let's say they were training me and they said, here's how you execute a block. 
And I and they said, and don't hold any don't hold the opponent's uniforms. I said, oh, because I'll be flagged for a penalty. Oh, no, you won't be flagged for a penalty. Well, then what amount of training will prevent me from using this tactic that I might feel is necessary in a certain situation? There's a legitimate argument to be made um, that I am very sympathetic to. I, I think I believe in, which is that we've reached a point where small ball doesn't work. Right where these kind of um, bureaucratic, technocratic reforms, which consent decrees require, even the, what the congressional Democrats have proposed in their police reform package, where all of those things are necessary to you know to implement today to prevent needless death tomorrow, in my view, but they don't fundamentally solve the problem. Right? They are they are trying to um, they they're trying to eliminate. Um, the epidemic of um, of police violence. They're not solving it. They're not curing it, right? I mean, for example, in 2015, Minneapolis was picked by the Obama Justice Department um, uh, as part of their national initiative for building community trust and justice. And there a cohort of cities that agreed to kind of proactively, without a consent decree, without a, a court mandating reform, to implement certain reforms. Those things included implicit bias training, a program of rec- racial reconciliation. I mean, even a program for officers to practice mindfulness in order to provide for their wellness, right? A lot of very kind of progressive-minded, but kind of, you know, is sort of standalone programs. Like Minneapolis did these things. It didn't prevent George Floyd from happening. The other side of the reforms don't work argument, which I've heard and talked about on my show in Minneapolis, is that why would a reform about mindfulness, which is implemented in 2015 and is some training in the academy over three days, how would that possibly affect the mind of Derek Chauvin, who hasn't been in the academy for 15 years? Or the implicit bias training, how does that really work when there are clearly cops who have explicit bias? I think the, well, maybe you would know better than I, but I think a lot of the scholarship on implicit bias is uh, ambiguous at best. So I think that reforms might work. Maybe those are some of the weaker reforms, but what can we do? This is your job. This is your life. What can we do besides reform? Sure. I mean, you know, I I think that um, uh, in most professions, um, folks have experiences of being mandated to go to some uh, to some workshop or some training, right? Like yeah. I'm a I'm a I'm a lawyer by training. I have to do continuing legal education, you know, so many hours f- over a time period, and I dread them because they're boring. You sort of sit there, right? You, you kind of passively absorb things. The rest of the time, you think about and what you definitely tell yourself ten times. This is just so the company could cover its ass, right? <laughs> That's what you're constantly saying. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, I mean, that's not, it's just, that, that's just a common kind of, kind of human thing. And I, so I, I mean, that's how police officers show up to, to, to training rooms. I mean, you know, officers generally in, in, in training, it's, it's not a real world kind of style of training. It's not putting um, pilots through um, flight simulators, for example. It is, you know, classroom based. It's reading them policies. It's death by PowerPoint. And, and it's nothing that sort of mimics um, their, real world interactions and it sh- and it should be and i think forward looking police departments have started to implement integrated scenario based training where officers are just placed into a situation you know with role playing actors and it can be result they don't know what they're going to get and they're going to have to just react and respond appropriately that sounds more like something that ha- would have a chance of changing officer behavior over time but i think it only has a chance 
to the extent that what officers get in training is being reinforced on on a day-to-day cultural front. And, you know, there's a, there's a saying in policing, especially in progressive policing circles, which is, it's apocryphal, everybody uses it, which is that culture eats policy for breakfast. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what you have written down. It doesn't matter what officers have been trained to do. If the culture embraces a mentality that it's, well, it's us against them out there, and we need to do what we have to do to stay safe and to control crime. And, you know, the policies are nice suggestions, but we do what we got to do. That's always going to be something that can't be affected by, you know, by, by, by policy and, and, and training. How much attitudinal change can happen if police unions are still powerful, especially when it comes to discipline? I mean, I don't think a whole lot. I I think that police unions are the single biggest impediment to police reform. I mean, my personal opinion is that public employee unions are and the framework around them are a significant hurdle uh, to police reform. I, it's just a fact. I think the Democratic Party doesn't want to face it, given the historical alliance with public unions. Um, but in police matters, what has typically happened, and, is, and I think it's taken decades to accumulate, but police unions uh, try to extract all of the concessions they can from public officials. And they will usually say, hey, rather than giving us a raise, because I don't know, maybe we're in financial difficulties or you are just the jurisdiction wants to spend money elsewhere. You know, instead of giving us as much of a raise, you know, we'll, we'll be fine without that. But, but, but why don't you say that, you know, impose a time limit on how long it can take for you to conduct misconduct investigations? You know, let's move, maybe move it to 60 or 90 days, right? And then if you're not finished and you have haven't reached a solution, then you know our officer can't be can't be dinged for it. Why don't you do that? And then since it doesn't cost, and also as part of it, you can't even begin an investigation without two or three sleep cycles. Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, no police department gives to victims of violent crime, right? Even though the same supposed principles would apply, right? Yes, they interview them right then and there. Yes, but but so so you know there are all these sort of provisions that grow up, and 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 and, and, and you know our politicians have taken the bait. Right. I mean, part part of part of the fault is on us for electing people who said, you know, when the going got tough, you know, we're going to we're going to cave, you know, and it's politically expedient for me to to give the the union what they want. I don't have to pay for it and whatever. But then it's very hard to, to, you know, in in order to walk back those provisions, generally the the jurisdiction has to pay even more. Right. But the notion even that I'm talking in these transactional terms and as far as negotiating away accountability uh, for a law enforcement officer uh, and law enforcement officials who work for us, that's just that's just that's lunacy. No one should think that the stuff in a union contract is all about sort of basic working conditions in terms of like health and safety. I mean, it it goes down to the min- most minute details, including unions functionally calling the shots as to what personnel work where. I mean, like the, in Cleveland, Ohio, for example, the union arguably has more say about who works where and the process of assignment than the police chief does. The police chief's hands are tied behind his back um, because of what's in the union contract. And, and that's absolute lunacy. And then what could you do as the federally court-appointed monitor uh, overseeing Cleveland if they have this reality of the union, a strong union in place? Is there any lever that you have? 
Well, I think in the federal consent decree context, one of the things that nobody um, who's been involved in the process for a variety of reasons has really wanted to push too far is the extent to which a federal consent decree, a federal reform project may or may not override um, uh, a union contract. And, you know, without getting into the arcane legal stuff, it's, you know, does a federal order uh, an order by a federal court that's trying to enforce the Constitution, does that override the particular provisions of a state labor contract? Um, well, wait, hold I, on. My, I never took constitutional yeah. law, but it is my understanding of the Constitution that the answer would be yes, because it is the Constitution. Uh, yes, that's my view as well, and I think it's about that simple. But, you know, um, uh, lawyers will, will, will argue um, a bunch of different things, and I think that there has been a desire to date basically to not have that showdown, right? Especially, I mean, part of it is because especially with the courts composed as they currently are, and especially, frankly, with Trump appointees now increasingly packing the relevant sort of um, district courts and, um, and appeals courts, if you set the precedent the wrong way, which is that, yeah, it doesn't matter. A union contract, uh, you know, can do whatever a union contract does and it's not overridden by a federal consent decree proceeding, then you've just, you know, you've lost the whole enchilada for a generation, yeah. right? And so yeah. there's not been a lot of appetite to have a direct, um, you know, a direct kind of showdown. But I, I just, I think, I think that people need to closely scrutinize police unions. And by the way, I'm not saying that police officers should not be able to organize and assemble in the way that other employees can in order to make sure that they're not getting completely screwed over, right, on very mm -hmm. basic stuff. I don't think anybody's saying that. I think it should be reasonable, though, for us to have a conversation about how what police officer unions have negotiated for, the provisions of their contract, have simply gone too far. Matthew Barge is a deputy director for the Police Assessment Resource Center and has worked with departments in Baltimore, Cleveland, Irvine, Chicago, and other places. He will be back tomorrow to discuss further what changes can be made in data, in transparency, and what they were trying to do with the Obama commission and how the promise of that has been largely scuttled by the current administration. And now the spiel. There's so many lies and hoaxes about the coronavirus, so much bonkers stuff or seriously misguided beliefs, it's hard to know where to start. Oh no, definitely not here. The patented nano silver we have, the Pentagon has come out and documented in Homeland Security and said this stuff kills the whole SARS corona family at point blank range. Well, of course it does. It kills every virus. That is Alex Jones claiming his magic toothpaste is Pentagon approved to kill corona. Identifying folly it's not that hard. Jones, obviously, Michigan militiamen railing against masks. They're not grounded in double-blind studies. Novak Djokovic, fabulous return game. Actually not a virologist. Don't, don't know if you knew that. So we can be certain that these people are wrong. But who is right? I mean, I am, I think, you are. I think when we broadly say the coronavirus is real and masks help, and let's take it really cautious on reopening, and let's distance. Also, keep it outside. All those things are true. Now, my fear all along wasn't just that the virus would come back. I should more accurately say that it would further present itself and prove that it never went away. My fear was that the states that tried to re reopen, even too aggressively, would deny the reality that it was back. So let's check in and see how that's going. 
In Texas, which is experiencing record numbers of new cases, the governor there, Greg Abbott, actually has acted. Not swiftly, not particularly aggressively, not completely, but he's maybe to the de minimis degree acknowledging reality. He banned elective surgery today to free up hospitals. And today he acknowledged that while the last thing we want to do as a state is go backwards and close down businesses, we, he said, are going to elect for a, quote, temporary pause, quote, that will help our state corral, Texas word, the spread until we can safely enter the next phase of reopening our state for business. So they at least paused the opening up experiment. This was probably hard for him to do because he definitely remembers just three days ago he said this. Closing down Texas again will always be the last option. I'm not going to congratulate the governor. He did act too late. He has done too little, but it's better than not acting at all. Hello, Ron DeSantis. But what's confusing and what we have to guard against is certitude in ourselves and thinking that there are any really easy answers out there. Because as much as Arizona, Florida, and Texas are not spiking, don't want to say spiking, but experiencing record numbers of cases, and as much as those states seem to have bungled the response, and as much as those states are controlled by Republican governors and legislatures, look at Georgia. Georgia did all the wrong things that those other states did, and they're having some more cases, but largely, this could change, but largely they've escaped the terrible consequences that could be besetting Texas. And then looked at Colorado. That's another example of a confounding example. Because in Colorado, the Democratic governor did what all those Republican governors did, open up really early. But Colorado, like Georgia, has largely escaped consequence. No big outbreak in Colorado. And then look at California, praised all along for doing it so well, doing it the right way. They're seeing a big increase too. So I just think there should be humility. There should be knowledge that there is not one golden rule of coronavirus response. Generally, masks are good. Outdoors, better than indoors. But everyone who was once at one time wore the mantle of hero of the response can fairly said to have bungled some key elements. Look at Andrew Cuomo and his mandatory acceptance of COVID-infected patients into nursing homes. By the same token, every corona fool, if said fool, shows some level of adaptation, can still, and maybe even has, helped his or her constituency somewhat. And by that, I mean the people of every state in America are better off with their current governor than if Donald Trump were their governor. At least Donald Trump as he's acting as president. In general, politicians are self-interested. And even though if they, well, they do, they do lie, they do deny reality, they do cook the numbers to some extent, a little bit, they all believe their power to totally reshape the narrative and bullshit their way clear to safety has some limits. Every politician believes that, except one. Happens to be the most powerful one in the country. There are confounding aspects to how the virus is playing out now. Number one is that the dormancy period between acquisition of the virus and presentation in the numbers, it's about two to three weeks, which happens to be perfectly aligned with our inattention span. And since the real result of a single event or week of events can take months to present themselves, we have almost a total inability to connect cause to effect. However, There are preliminary reports that the Black Lives Matter demonstrations did not cause a big increase in coronavirus acquisition. 
Patrick Ashley with Washington, D.C.'s Health Emergency Preparedness and Response Team said this to Newsy. We're really glad that we haven't seen any noticeable spikes from the protest. Uh, we think that's because people have been using their masks, practicing proper social distancing and washing their hands. And that Newsy report ended with a quote from a protester and then a rap by the reporter. It's a long road. Got to keep fighting. A fight that may not be as risky as initially feared. This is the time when journalistic default ambivalence is proper. It might not be as bad as initially feared. That seems right. Initial studies say that. The preliminary data are positive. Minnesota sponsored four pop-up COVID testing sites and found out of 4,487 tests conducted, 71 positive cases. That's one and a half percent. That should be seen as very good news. But that is not how it is seen, as KBJR Superior 6 News reported. Superior Mayor Jim Payne feels that after dozens tested for the coronavirus following the previous election, that the special election coming up on May 12th should be altered in some sort of way to fit the crisis that we're currently in. Mayor Payne says these numbers prove that having an in-person election is not safe. So 71 out of 400,000, more than 400,000, crisis not safe. All right, that in mind, listen to Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker describing the 450 out of 17,000 in his state who tested positive. We're obviously pleased to see that the percentage of positive tests was quite low, considering the frequency and the size of those protests and demonstrations. Now, personally, I think the attitude towards Massachusetts is closer to being the proper assessment than the gloom over the Wisconsin results. I do think, however, that because Wisconsin was forced, made to vote by a Republican-controlled judiciary that infected and afflicted many people's assessment on if the primary went well or went disastrously, like a crisis. Let's say it comes out that 150 people who attended the Trump-Tulsa speech caught COVID-19. The condemnation will definitely be fierce towards those rally goers who idiotically put themselves in harm's way. But I chose 150 because it's actually two and a half percent of the 6,000 people who attended. That is the same percentage as the Massachusetts protesters who are wise, cautious, and blessedly have been largely avoidant of the virus. There is no rationale for risking your life and the life of your loved ones to attend a Trump rally. But then again, supporting Trump at all can be said to risk the health and lives of a lot of people. We just have to keep remembering the virus acts as a virus and a novel virus at that. So much of it is largely unknown. Yet we continue to bend it toward our interpretation of the world and use it to rationalize what we think is right and what we think is proper about the rest of the world, the world outside the virus. Some people who acquired it, though at fairly low rates, some people were doing the Lord's work, some people were idiots, fools, and what do you expect? They acquired it at the same rate. People who acquire it in one setting, who we approve of, Thank God, what a low rate of infection. Other people who acquire it in a different setting, maybe in pursuit of a goal we disagree with, well, they, they deserve it for the dumb choices they made. I always check myself to make sure that the party of the governor of a state isn't doing too much work in my assessment of if the residents of that state are catching or avoiding the virus more than they should. 
We are humans. We see patterns when they're not there. We imbue noise with meaning. We justify our preconceptions. If you want to tell me Alex Jones is an idiot, I'm on board. If you want to say the governors of Florida, Mississippi, and Texas whiffed, well, I, I not only agree, I've said that here in this space. But in reality, the virus proceeds as the virus will, and there's so little that even the most righteous can do to stanch its progress. And often, there's so many poor choices the least cautious actually do make, and they still avoid its wrath. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly, GIST producer, uses a hand cream that's certified by Homeland Security, NASA, and DARPA to fight liver spots. Also, Department of Fish and Wildlife guaranteed to have more omega-3s than a trout that swallowed a salmon. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, was pleased to see that the Hans Hegg statue finally led us to remember Hans Hegg. He's a hell of a Hegg, and his downfall was his ascendance. What the Battle of Chickamauga first did, so too did some loons in Wisconsin to the edifice, the symbol, the pewter version of Hans Hegg. The gist. The GOP hate machine was originally bought from unused parts of a model Ford, a burp-powered Wonka-mobile, and the parts of the George Michael sports machine that had all the George Steinbrenner clips inside of it. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.